Welcome Brian McHale, Arts and Humanities Distinguished Professor at The Ohio State University. Welcome, Brian. Thank you, Frederick. It's great to be here, wherever here is. Yes. So, Brian, like a question a lot of us might have is, how did a kid from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, end up writing, researching, creating, helping establish this field of narrative, narratology, narrative theory? Yeah, how did, how did that happen? Okay, can I say first, I'm so happy to see those covers of those books here. Um, I'm, I'm really proud of them, the, the artwork on them, and it's good to see them in front of me. It makes me feel uh, warm and fuzzy. Um, okay, everybody's backstory always involves that um, key person or, or those, that succession of key people who sort of throw you on another track. Um, so when I was an undergraduate at Brown University, there was an um, a English academic called Roger Fowler who was there as a visiting professor one semester, and he was a stylistician, which I didn't know, you know what that could possibly be. Um, took a seminar with him, and he got me thinking about style and about... Um, linguistics uh, and its usefulness to talk about literature. It felt like um, he showed me a whole new toolkit. So I aspired to do that. And I um, got a scholarship to go to the UK, to Oxford, and studied with a stylistician there called Stephen Ullman, um, one of the old school European polymath um, uh, literary scholars, uh, and a stylistician um, who died of uh, heart disease while I was his student. And I got um, taken over um, by uh, a former student of his, Jonathan Culler, who happened to be at Oxford at, at that time. So there's three names. One after the other set me in a slightly different direction, but also at the same time kept me on track, thinking about form, about language. Uh, and um, I found my way to um, a, 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 what I thought was a really promising and engaging case study, which was uh, the American modernist novelist, uh, John Dos Passos, um, whom I read, uh, I mean, I really, really dove into it. Um, and uh, from Dos Passos, you know, a modernist, the, maybe the, the, the greatest modernist whose name we've forgotten among the Americans. Um, from there, it's not obvious how you get to postmodernism, but again, it's an accident. A, a, a fellow student of mine handed me uh, a novel by Thomas Pynchon, uh, um, a, a post-war novelist. Um, his uh, historical novel, V, and then I moved on to his later historical novel, Gravity's Rainbow, and I looked at those and I thought, um, um, they're similar in ambition and in their historical scope and um, in their immersiveness to John Dos Passos, but on all these other um, uh, scales and measures, they're different. Um, how, you know, how to account for the difference? Um, what's, what's new about the way Pynchon does fiction compared to the way Dos Passos did fiction. And that got me started, right? So how is this later thing of the 60s and 70s different from 
this modernist thing that I've spent so much time thinking about and reading and rereading. Um, and at the same time, um, I couldn't imagine that Pynchon was unique, that he wasn't, he wasn't out there all on his own. Um, there must be other kinds of writing, other writers um, who are similar to him in some way. So I began to collect those and to, and to then ask the questions, so what's similar among these writers and what's different between them and the modernists who came before? It's, in other words, uh, a case study in change and difference over time. And I was able to um, identify some other writers, some other kinds of writing in, in, uh, uh, in Pynchon's generation, his contemporaries, that seemed like him, um, but then how to describe the likeness. So the um, French novelists of the uh, new novel period or the other Americans, the metafictional writers like Coover and Barth and, and Nabokov, um, or the Latin American writers of the of the boom, um, like Garcia Marquez or um, Carlos Fuentes, um, they seem to have some things in common with Pynchon, but also to be distinct. So, what what categories or what um, umbrellas could I group them under that allow me to capture their sameness um, and also their difference from the modernists who came before? So that's what gets me into the the whole issue of. Um, postmodernism and its distinctiveness, its difference from modernism. Right? So a series of um, kind of happenstances and uh, kind of right place, right time with folks like color. Of course, the scholarship that you got was a Rhodes scholarship, which is not any scholarship. And, That's true. Um, and, and you did get it and you got your defil. Um, you went from there to uh, Israel, right? Is that correct? Am I getting that right? That's right. And that's another of those stories where Jonathan Culler had met uh, Benjamin Haroshovsky, the Israeli scholar at um, the Hebrew Center in Oxford, and he introduced us. And Haroshovsky said, um, you want to come and be a research assistant for a couple of years? And I said, I've got currently nothing better to do. Nobody else is offering me a job. So I went and finished writing my dissertation while I was in Tel Aviv um, and was his research assistant and organized his uh, off prints and his library and, um, and was there uh, at the um, moment when he wanted to launch an English language journal. Uh, there, there had always been a Hebrew language journal uh, at Tel Aviv University um, edited by Haroshovsky and his circle, the sort of Tel Aviv um, scholars of poetics, um, a journal called Hasifrut. And then he started an English language journal, short-lived, called um, Poetics and Theory of Literature. And when that folded after a couple of years, he launched another one called Poetics Today. A cliffhanger, um, or cliffhanger. There we go. We'll get back to Poetics Today later. But that's, that's how the Israeli connection came. And that's how I, I got exposed to all of this uh, Israeli um, um, tradition of literary scholarship, uh, which was, you know, which tapped into the really deep roots of Eastern and Central European uh, literary scholarship. So this nicely leads us into the, the big question, I guess, narrative theory as a kind of big key for you to unlock these kind of this transnational 
literary kind of republic or space, right, of a kind of fiction that's happening that has similarities but differences. Why narrative theory? So here's here's the thing. Um, uh, it, it it seems to me that different eras or periods of literary practice um, uh, amplify and foreground different parts of narrative, um, which are captured by different parts of narrative theory. Right? If we're talking about the modernist era, my starting point in, in, uh, in my career, um, what's crucial is to talk about what in narrative theory we call focalization and narration. In other words, who sees, who speaks, um, the, the sort of transmission of information, the transmission of narrative um, inside a fiction. Um, those are the things you want most to grasp when you're looking at modernist narratives like Dos Passos or Faulkner or uh, um, Virginia Woolf. Um, when you come to the postmodernists, you could use all those tools, but they won't necessarily take you to the most interesting and, and distinctive thing about postmodernism. Instead, you want to be using tools that give you access to world building and actually world unbuilding, which happens a lot in postmodernist fiction. Um, so you need the tools that, that uh, or you need the categories of narrative theory that allow you to grasp the world building aspect of narratives. So you want to talk about possible worlds theory and you want to go to a different range of theorists and their toolkit. Um, so it seems to me that, um, you know, what narrative theory in, in, its, it, in the breadth of its scope allows you to do is to um, adjust and fine tune the toolkit to accommodate different kinds of writing, different periods of writing um, and to be, um, uh, responsive to uh, uh, the, the differences. Uh, that was, thank you, uh, Brian. Um, you just kind of illuminated decades of my kind of, you know, <laughs> thinking in the area, um, uh, especially the, you know, what kind of finally, what is this key that we use all the time in our work called narrative theory or narratology? Um, so, if you were now looking back at your career and even looking forward, is there, I don't know, a worldview, an approach? Is there a singular question that you're asking? Is there an, a kind of uh, end goal in mind, of maybe a unified theory? Or, yeah, what is the Brian McHale research program? I'm, I'm not sure about unified or fully unified, um, but it all starts on that question about change and difference and change and difference um, as, as driven by form, the history of form, right? Change of, uh, and difference, of course, is also driven by the change of the world around the writers. The writers are always responsive to their world. And so the difference between the world of the modernists and the world of the postmodernists that's important. That's, that's something that um, also drives them. But at the same time, form changes, not exactly independently of the world, but as they say, semi-autonomously um, at a different rate, or, or the, it doesn't sync up. The changes in form don't necessarily sync up directly with the changes in the world. There is an internal mechanism uh, in literary history, many 
internal mechanisms um, that drive change and drive things forward. So that's the overarching question. How do you get from point A to point B when point A and point B are different forms? Um, how do you get from the modernist form of uh, narrative to the postmodernist form? And then, um, you know, the various um, uh, fallouts from asking that set of questions. Um, there's always uh, um, more to be uh, explored. There's always leftovers, right? Um, so, for instance, after I had written two books about postmodernist fiction, I realized I hadn't said anything about poetry, and poetry was really um, uh, interesting, and um, the differences were really striking between modernist and postmodernist poetry. I'd better try and think about that. I'd better try and think about ways of capturing that difference as well. It's not as clear cut and it's um, um, there's a lot of moving parts, but um, you know, the, the, the initial set of research questions about change keep giving birth to new questions. Um, uh, and that's what I've been really tracking all this time. Right. Speaking of um, all of the things that you're doing in your research and the approach or the questions that you have, that you're constantly tackling and um, the kinds of new objects of study that you're sort of taking in, what, where, like, how does this find its way into the classroom for you? Right. I have the sense uh, that students, um, the students that I encounter are actually hungry for tools right? Um, they have intuitions and they have interests, um, but I have the sense they sometimes feel frustrated that they don't have the tools to, to express those intuitions or, or to extend those intuitions, right? And it seems to me narrative theory is a toolkit we can help them acquire um, to, uh, um, uh, you know, feed that hunger, um, to give them ways to talk about the things that interest them, the objects that interest them, the arts that interest them, um, and, you know, um, to share their insights with each other um, so the tools are held in common by all, everybody in the class. Um, and also to find things that they wouldn't have been able to find without the toolkit. So this is really about giving them uh, um, the capacity, the tools um, to talk about the literary works and the art forms um, that interest them. Um, it's not the only toolkit they could be equipped with, but in my experience, it's a, it's a good one. Um, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's flexible, it's powerful, it's handy. Um, and I, I think um, the students find it that way too, right? They, they can actually, you know, by the end of a, a semester, pack up their toolkit and take it out of the class with them and go to work on other stuff um, with, their, with their tools. So I try, even in classes that are not specifically um, about narrative or about narrative theory, um, classes like introductory surveys um, or the course I teach on science fiction, I try to make sure that some of what we do is um, about assembling and uh, replenishing their toolkit, right? Um, and even if it's not, you know, the central aspect of a particular course, 
it's, it is something um, that they can take away with them anyway. Yeah, that's great. Um, is there, uh, I, you said even if it's not central, in other words, they probably don't have like a reading from narrative theory, but it's in the background. Right. Um, uh, is there, I don't know, let's take a sci- your science fiction class. Is there something that has proven over and over again to be something you're, as like the Brian McHale go-to for narrative theory in, that, in these spaces or in that space? So you mean a, a, a piece of theoretical writing that I would give the students or one, one that I would absorb into the class? One you'd absorb into the class, yeah. Right, okay. So it, it is the case that, you know, the way I, talk, I teach the, uh, the science fiction class is really colored by my readings in possible worlds theory. And, you know, the science fiction class is at, uh, um, at, at its heart a class about world building right? Um, science fiction is distinctive because it is um, the most self-consciously world-building genre. Um, and it's, and it's, it's, almost, um, uh, it's almost a narrative theory uh, uh, in its own right. Um, with just a little extra boost of self-consciousness, it becomes its own narrative theory. It, it shows us world-building right in front of our eyes. Um, so that I bring in the, you know, uh, the, the, the aspects of narrative theory that has to do with world building, and I line them up with um, the science fiction theories about worlds, about the novum, um, about um, uh, cognitive estrangement, um, these very powerful ideas, um, which are um, in their origin indebted to narrative theory and are easy to correlate with narrative theory. So I don't, I don't need to use very much of this terminology um, in order um, to get the students to see, you know, um, um, narratologically into science fiction. Yeah, wonderful, yeah. Um, okay, so you mentioned poetry as something that you were kind of very curious about, understanding more, and the long poem in one of your books. So I know this is a lot of, you know, John Ashbery, um, but what, how do you read the skaters in a nutshell, or how would you read a few lines with your kind of approach? So here's, here's what's attractive about Ashbury, right? So, so for, um, from my, from my experience, and I think I'm, this is shared by a lot of people, Ashbury's, uh, uh, verse is very attractive, beautiful, but also elusive and frustrating, exasperating, right? Um, he seems to be um, uh, almost making sense all the time. You know, you almost get it, but you can't quite get it, right? And he also seems to be offering you keys to how to read this poem and then withdrawing the keys. So um, you, you think you've got a handle on it and then you don't have a handle on it. So that's for me part of the attraction of the poem. The frustration is part of the attraction. And one of the things that Ashbury does in the skaters, in really um, almost all of his uh, longer poems and all the poems through maybe the end of the nineties in the, in our century in his last books, he becomes more of a lyric poet, but in, in all along, he's been working with a mix of lyric and narrative. Um, These are quasi narrative poems. There are narrative passages or there's narrative possibilities um, for reading these poems. 
And that's part of the attraction of it for me. It's on again, off again narrative, right? The narrative is there and then it's gone. Um, um, it, the poem feels immersive in the way that great novels are immersive. And then it turns a corner and it feels expulsive. It throws you out, right? Um, and it's that give and take between being drawn in, immersed, and being thrown out, alienated, right? Um, that, you know, that's the, the attraction of the poems. That's the, that's the frustration of the poems. And that, it seems to me, is like what Ashbury is after, right? Um, and and it's, not, um, it's not everybody's cup of tea, but um, for me, it really works. Yes, and elsewhere you've um, done some really great generative um, kind of conceptual work with the notion of the line break, right? Segmentation and the energy, even in the line itself when it breaks. Um, so such great work. Um, the alpha to omega in a way for me, thinking about you and your kind of journey is poetics today. So getting us back to that uh, moment when you were, in Israel, um, and then kind of, yeah, maybe that in itself is a journey, right? Poetic. True. True. Right. Okay. So I was there at the origin, right? I was on the masthead. I was an assistant to the editor from the first issue of Poetics Today. And throughout um, the 1980s, when I was still living in Israel, I had various titles, but I was always functioning uh, um, uh, in some capacity um, uh, with the journal. And even if, after I returned to the States in the 90s, I kept up for, for about 10 years um, a relationship to the journal. But in the end, there were too many stresses and strains between me and the editor. Um, and so we discontinued. We had a um, more or less amicable divorce um, until around 2015, when the journal was in some dire straits, um, falling behind uh, its publication schedule, and I was asked to step in as, a, as an interim, just, um, just to get things back on track. So between 2015 and last year, 2019, um, I, I edited the journal, um, uh, commissioned a bunch of special issues, you know, um, did all the things you do in order to get back on schedule, um, to get back into people's consciousness again, um, to, you know, um, um, mend some bridges um, and hand the thing off in pretty good shape um, at the end of uh, June 2019 uh, to some new editors, younger generation, two women, Yalet Shamir at, in Tel Aviv and Irene Tucker at um, UC uh, Irvine. Um, so, it, you know, a changing of the guard, um, and I'm proud that, you know, the journal they inherited is sound and intact and, and um, you know, um, they're now in a position to run with it. And that makes me feel very happy. Brian, you know, given your sort of history, very kind of material and sort of scholarly history with something like Poetics Today, why is, why is a journal like this so important for maybe defining and growing and complicating a field like narrative theory? Well, I, I think it has two things going for it, Poetics Today. One is it really does have roots, right? It really comes out of that Tel Aviv group who in turn drew heavily on all that scholarship from Eastern Europe and Central Europe from, you know, um, 
from Russian and Polish and German scholarship. Um, and they were, you know, they were deeply um, uh, imbued with those traditions and carried them on and updated them and advanced them. Um, so the journal is still grounded in that. And that's, that's one thing that it has going for it. And the other thing is, over the years, it has proven to be open to new developments. It's been a, um, a kind of home to developments in cognitive narratology, to developments in unnatural narratology. Even, even when uh, the editor himself um, or herself henceforth is personally skeptical about these developments or has reservations, um, the journal is still uh, hospitable to them. And I think that's a virtue. And, you know, the, the two together, um, the, the rootedness and the openness um, make for, uh, I think, a, a, you know, a, a valuable journal, something um, worth reading. Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, in many ways speaks to the kind of robustness of the field itself, right? True. True. Right. Right. Um, so, What's next for you, Brian? Well, okay. So uh, I've got I've got two projects, and again, they're kind of spillovers or or continuations of things I've been working on all along. Um, and I'm alternating or or um, uh, hesitating between the two of them. One is to continue the the um, pro- the research into narrative and poetry. Um, I, I've published a, a few papers about that, and I, I know where the gaps in my knowledge are, and I'm going to try and fill those in. Um, right now, you know, I want to try and get a handle on that um, whole tradition of the ballad in English, which is really crucial for um, um, the English language tradition of, of narrative and poetry. So the folk ballads, literary ballads, um, commercial ballads in country music, um, I want to try and, and um, get my head around that. That's in the next step towards a, a more comprehensive um, study of narrative and poetry. But at the same time, I'm also currently working on science fiction um, because I've been publishing occasionally in scattered ways material on science fiction. And I looked at it one day and thought um, it wouldn't take that much to pull all these scattered pieces together and to, to integrate it all and to make sense of it under, under one roof. So I'm working on that too. Currently, um, the science fiction project has sort of edged out the, the narrative poetry project. Um, um, but, um, but, you know, the, the, the two of them are going along side by side. And I, and I feel both of them are, are a kind of complementary, adjacent to work I've been doing all along since the 80s. Brian, this is kind of putting you on the spot here, but, um, you know, if you had any science fiction on your bedstand, and maybe you do, what is that science fiction or what science fiction right now is interesting to you? Right, cool. So I looked at the corpus, you know, all the books I'd read and notes I'd taken and things I'd written about, and I realized, and people have pointed this out to me before, um, it's a little bit skewing male. There's not enough of the women science fiction writers in my corpus. So I set myself down to um, fill out, to finish reading the, the women science fiction writers that I value the most. So I was 
reading the Ursula Le Guin stories that I'd missed. Um, I'm sitting down now with Joanna Russ. There's a couple more of her novels that I haven't, uh, hadn't read before. I finished the last of the Octavia Butler ones that I um, uh, hadn't read. Um, and N.K. Jemisin is queued up after them. So this is all about filling out um, the, the range of my corpus and, and um, allowing me to, you know, talk with a little bit more authority about, um, you know, the range of science fiction. Absolutely. Yeah. Exciting. Really exciting. Um, Brian, thank you for unzipping your brain a little bit and sharing your journey. Uh, gosh, so much, uh, the long poem, um, you know, story world building, science fiction in the classroom, your current work, this poetics today, which seems to have kind of been a, a, a long part of your kind of career as a scholar in your journey. Um, thank you, Brian. Thanks a lot, Frederick. It was a lot of fun. Okay.